You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Milton Lawson, it is good to be with you again. Thanks for having me on. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, uh, part of the um, Sophia is part of the Blogging Heads TV dot Meaning of Life TV uh, network. Um, I am your host, Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State. I also edit and publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora. I'm here with someone who by now, every, all of our viewers should know, since I've done a number of dialogues with him, and that is Milton Lawson. Uh, Milton, uh, why don't you, for the two people left in the universe who don't know who you are, um, just give us our, your brief little bio and what it is you're, uh, you're doing. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Milton Lawson. I'm a comic book writer based out of Houston, Texas. Um, and I'm a former uh, technical hand at Blogging Heads TV. I used to do some of the video editing back when the software and production methods were a lot more manual and lower tech. So were you the one? So when I first started, I first started five years ago. And the way it worked then was we had to go to a special pe- web page that had a, had a recorder on it, and each person was recording their own themselves, mm-hmm. and then it would later get put together. And I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times it got fucked up, and we had to wind up redoing the whole goddamn thing again. Were you yeah. that when you were on board with back in those primitive days, t- tech days? Um- what you described is actually a little bit more advanced than what I was at. I was in the first. We were five using years. actual phones. We were not using <laughs> mics. We were like right, yeah. Um, uh, it was basically the same process. Um, we didn't really have that web page working well at that point. Um, what we did is we would send everybody this long, like three-page document explaining how to do the process and everything. And yes, unfortunately due to the complexities of everything involved. We, we had a burn rate, I guess, around 5% or so that just some amazing discussions that were lost forever. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing in what a short time, how quickly this, this process just became so easy that anybody could just do it themselves. You know, I mean, it's really quite, yeah. quite remarkable. Um, so I'm here with Milton because um, – we, we've got a very exciting development and that is that um, now Milton has already published comic books before, but um, the mother load kind of has come out and, and um, this is, this is issue number two. Um, uh, I also have issue number one um, and there's a third coming out. Um, Thompson Heller detective interstellar. And um, so we're here to talk about not just the book itself uh, in particular, um, but also just about comic writing and comic comic making, um, which I suspect a lot of people really just have no idea how it's done and what's involved. And um, um, and, and it's something that I think is, is really interesting uh, and, and worth talking about. Um, first of all, Milton, congratulations. This is really a tremendous accomplishment. Um, and, Thank you uh, so much. The, the level of professional, the professionalism, the quality – all of it is just really top notch. Um, I, 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 I'm assuming you are pleased with this, the final product. Very proud. Very proud. Yeah. 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 So um, let's talk first a little bit just about the book itself. Um, so 
if please correct me if, if you think I mischaracterize any of this, but it is essentially a kind of sci-fi noir um, yeah. with a, uh, a, a, a sort of a grizzled, hard drinking, smoking protagonist um, um, set in, set in the future. Um, um, the pretty far future, it seems, or, or, or am I, does it actually say what year it is? No, well, we've we've kind of intentionally left that a little vague. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, let's put it this way: it's on a galactic scale, so uh, clearly, yeah. you know. Um, and um, one of the things I noticed right away, and I'm assuming this was a deliberate choice, and I, it's a choice I really liked, um, is that this is not a kind of a serial. It's not. Yes, there's an overarching sort of story and world that involves this guy and his cases, right? But each individual issue is a self-contained episode, so to speak. Um, yes. Was, was is did you decide to do that because you you prefer episodic to serialization, or is it simply because this was only a three a three volume comic, and so it would kind of I guess you could still have serialized it, but what made you decide to do them as self-contained as opposed to one serialized story? It was a little bit, um, there was a hint of unconscious bias into it. Um, there was a, a certain amount of deliberate choosing as well, but um, there is a debate in comics right now, in monthly comics, over um, this exact structural issue. And the way it's referred to in comics is uh, compression versus decompression. Um, and in the past 20 years, the drift has been towards more and more decompression. And the ones... How does that map onto serial versus episodic? Which is, which word means serial and which means episodic? Um, you get a more serial sense in the decompressed okay. world. Um, a lot of major Marvel and DC comics for a story unit you really need to have like at least four, often five or six issues. Um, and if you're reading it month to month, you're really only getting a chapter of the story. And then the story will conclude, uh, you know, five or six months after you started. And um, you will, you know, there are a lot of people that don't even want to play that game and they wait until it's collected into a single volume and those people are called trade waiters. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've bought those 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 collections, mm-hmm. but it's always been in terms of things that I kind of missed. So back mm-hmm. in the day when I was actively buying current comics, which would have been the last would have been in the in the early eighties. It was mostly the seventies that I collected comics. I would have read them every month. Um, but now, when I sort of go back and try to like you know reread things I missed, I buy the whole book, you know, the whole package because a, to buy the individuals is not so easy when you're talking about back issues. And um, yeah. And also there's a certain convenience to it, but you know, I do feel the, you know, the reason I said that I liked the choice is, you know, you and I had this discussion about Star Trek, the same question with regard to Star Trek, Star Trek has gone in a serial mm-hmm. rather than an episodic direction and I think I said to you at the time that I, I don't really love it for, for a show like Star Trek. I do, I like the episodic mode. Um, and I don't mind, you know, 
several some arcs being self-contained you know there's four episodes or three episodes or whatever but um 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 and i do i do like the fact that i can just you know read this book let me get this so that people can see it without the screen um <laughs> and um and uh and i and i've got a complete story you know what i mean yeah. I, I, I like that fact it's something really satisfying that this physical package is one complete story um uh, yeah i i i did want to go that route um and part of the just production process made that happen as well and um but then after the three issues were written and done and we started talking about what if scenarios for how to continue there was actually a moment where i flirted with abandoning that structure and with the next arc um having it be more decompressed um and we could maybe get into that at some point as well yeah but i've I've ultimately gone back to one issue per case uh, uh because a lot of people are expressing the same as you that they that's one of the charms of it yeah it's refreshing um and look, a well-made character and a well-conceived universe is one in which there can be kind of serial-like development, even with a primarily episodic structure, right? So certainly in, let's say, Star Trek Next Generation, um, you know, there is character development over the arc, right? I mean, Data changes a lot. Riker has an arc. I mean, Troy yeah. and, you know, all, all these people have arcs. But nonetheless it's episodic right and yeah. i feel like you created a universe and a character here that you there really is no limit to the number of stories you could tell in it it seems to me that would be the hope yes if if we had a ideal universe with the the appropriate amount of audience to uh sustain uh sustain everything we would uh we would be able to do i i think uh you know Anywhere from 50 to 100 of these. You, you designed this so that it could be a world you could tell a bunch of stories, a, a world and a character you could tell a bunch of stories in. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So let me talk a little bit about the character in the world, okay? Um, um, the character, I'm interested to hear your how you conceived of the character. So, I mean... I, you know, we can't, we can't assume what the audience knows and doesn't know. I looked at this guy. The first thing I immediately thought of was trans metropolitan. Now I don't know whether that had any, now he's, your guy's a lot healthier than the, than the guy <laughs> trans metropolitan, um, a lot less, a lot less deranged. Um, 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 but there is a similar kind of wry kind of, um, world weary, um, quality to him, a very instinctively kind of likable. I don't know. I know you're a fan of trans, trans, did that serve as any kind of inspiration for this character or are you taking this from Raymond Chandler novels and stuff? Um, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, the, I, I didn't have the direct inspiration on, uh, certain aspects of, of the actual character, but what it, what it did influence is, you know, Transmetropolitan is essentially Hunter S. Thompson in a cyberpunk universe. That's right. And my character, Thompson Heller, is an amalgamation of uh, things uh, in a, also in a semi-cyberpunky uh, universe as well. So they have a similar sort of 
development process to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that I, I could sort of fundamentally noticed about this character, and I would say the same is true of the main of the lead in Transmetropolitan, whose now name is escaping me. Um, um, Spider Jerusalem. That's right. Um, is and maybe your character more so, but there is a fundamentally ethical core to these characters. Um, mm-hmm. They're kind of dirty. They kind of, they kind of play in the sleaze, but they are fundamentally ethical. These are not amoral characters and they're not really even, I would say morally ambiguous characters. Um, um, did, did you, did you just want to have a sort of a moral lead or, or I mean, what, what sort of went into your decisions about, how to make this character, what sort of a person to make this character? Well, um, it actually came out of a exercise in a workshop I was in. And um, th- the story there goes as follows. Um, I- I'll even back up a little bit if, if you'll indulge me here. Oh, I, um, please. I-, I want to hear about how these things are made. And so, yes, please go as far back as you want. So before this series, I tried to write um, two other more commercial series. All of the stuff I've done up until this point has been more independent type stuff. Um, my, my first, um, oh, There's thank one. you. <laughs> um, Roger Ebert and me um, is one, um, which this, um, I have to tell you, I adore this. This I don't think I've ever read such a compact and effective love song to cinema as this. This this is absolutely beautiful. Um, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And then this is the other one. Um, this one just actually just made me fucking weep. Um, <laughs> this is this was really beautiful. But yeah, you would say this is more art house pro- stuff, right? I mean, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and so um, I, I do have a number of more commercial quote unquote ideas. Um, and I wrote two of them, and they were absolutely abysmal. This is not like false modesty or anything. They, they were, sucked. <laughs> they were. They were. No, they were even worse than sucked. They were. They were fun. Uh, they were fundamentally uh, just beyond jumbled. Uh, it didn't use the medium right, um, uh, and and so I, out of that failure, I realized I needed. Um, I needed mentorship. And so I found this uh, workshop that is run by a formal Marvel editor named Andy Schmidt. Um, What's who, the workshop? It's called comics experience. Okay. So that's, that's one of the names that's on this. And yes, um, yes. is it the publisher? It's not the publisher they, though, is it? They are actually a co-publisher with the other publisher uh, in the line of books. Okay. So go um, on. So, um, so this ex Marvel people are running a workshop to help right. cultivate the next generations of comic writers, right? Okay. And they uh, they also help artists and other comic aspects. creators. Let's say that, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah go um, on. So, um, one of the things they did is they would have these monthly challenges, and there was a monthly challenge called the quote unquote borrowed character challenge. And the borrowed character refers to a character creating technique for people who are slaving away on like a big corporate project 
and they have a lot of things that they're working on and they're, they're, they're stuck. They're out of ideas and they need to create a character. Um, and they don't have time to really noodle on it. They, they just need something right away. And this technique that has been developed is called the borrowed character. And essentially what it is, is you take a known character, um, either someone in real life or another fictional character and you remove them from their normal context and you put them in an entirely new context. And just from that new juxtaposition, you create a new character. So where does that principle come from? I don't know who first originated it. Here's the reason I'm asking. Um, It's something that's done in science fiction literature. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read Philip Jose Farmer's river world series. No, I have not. But like the main character of the first book is the actual historical Richard Burton, right? Um, Okay. Pulled out of history and shoved into this bazaar. And so I'm wondering how far that goes back and whether it's originally a literary trope or, or where it comes from. Yeah. That would not surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, And uh, this one, the person who passed it along is actually the comic creator who created Bane, uh, who people would recognize from the Nolan uh, Batman films. And so um, I was just sitting around trying to think of a character for this challenge. Um, And at the moment um, I was, I was reading one of Christopher Hitchens books um, and I'm a fan of Christopher Hitchens writing and his sort of pugilistic television performances And um, so I said, okay, let me put Christopher Hitchens in a science fiction universe. So Hitchens is the template for Thompson Heller. Yes. Yes. That's Um, amazing. Amazing. And and not now that you say it, I can see it. You didn't just put him in the science fiction. You turned him into a noir detective, which I have to say is pretty fucking brilliant, man. I mean, it it works, (laughs) but it's not something I would have thought of. And the the reason why I put him as a noir detective was I felt like a specifically Transmetropolitan that we were just talking about is about a journalist. And I didn't want to do that same thing. I didn't want to have another journalist. And I thought, well, what is the closest thing to a journalist? Uh, an investigator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's how the character was born. And I created, um, I wrote a very short version of what became the first issue. Okay. Gosh, this is just, I'm getting really excited about this. Um, okay. So, and of course, now that now the question about the sort of the ethical center comes out, right? Because, right. Because, you know, that was very much Hitchens thing, right? I mean, he had a very profound ethical center, although he kind of lived dirty. Right. And yeah. um, I think there's something very intrinsically appealing about that sort of character. I think partly because the good characters are often become goody goody. And thus unlikable, right. whereas the, the the being kind of dirty keeps your keeps your goodness kind of seem authentic, right? Um, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and so I, I, the character uh, Thompson Heller is just an incredibly um, uh, likable uh, character. Um, let me ask you then now about the plots. Um, one of the things I did notice, I mean, this is not meant to be hidden, right? In both cases the plots are very clearly channeling contemporary 
social concerns, right? The first yeah. one is environmentalism. Um, um, and then the second one, I would just sort of call vaguely transhumanist, but just more the idea of, um, um, uh, ex- how shall we say, expanding the circle of the moral circle of concern. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it has to do with androids. Um, um, first of all, I don't want you to give away the third one, but is this going to continue? In other words, is the third one also going to be clearly channeling a contemporary social concern? Um, I would say somewhat less so. It It is a little bit more on the timeless concern that consumed Hitchens' life uh, more than any, and that is the um, conflict between rationality and faith. Um, okay. And um, But even in that chapter, it's a little bit more... Um, it's almost the B plot of that issue. Um, and that issue, um, it, it is a contemporary concern and it is a contemporary social concern. Um, but it's a lot more grounded, um, than, uh, and I think a lot of people wouldn't even identify it as having, uh, a clear political angle to it. And I, well, I'm kind and so, of dancing so, around it, but... Um, so, so I guess the question, what I was going to get at was, was this also one of your main sort of thematic ideas? Okay, it's like, okay, I want this character, this sort of character with a fundamentally moral center, but who kind of lives dirty and, and, and has that grit to him. Yes. I was then going to ask you, and was it also part of your idea that we're go- this is going to be stories that channel contemporary questions and issues i mean yeah the the one sentence description of the character often uh says that he specializes in cases that have a political or moral dimension to yeah them. yeah yeah and, and and as we find out uh usually doesn't get paid um right <laughs> <laughs> um, um yeah and so um um because i thought in the second one which has to do um with uh robot intelligence um, and takes place in a universe in which um, robots are fully sentient conscious. They they are unambiguously uncontroversially persons. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, and how that sort of plays out in a universe in which there's still, uh, in which there's quite a bit of prejudice prejudice against them, and I thought that this was an interesting choice, and I just sort of want to push you pick, push your pick your brains a little bit on why you decided to go this way so it's very it's not, it's a pretty common trope in science fiction um uh, l- largely i would say identified with philip k dick right um, mm-hmm. to sort of raise these questions about artificial uh intelligence and life, but when Dick does it part of the problem is that there's still an ambiguity as to mm-hmm. the actual personhood of the robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, one of the things that that does is it does somewhat make a little bit more ambiguous, the morality or immorality of the opposition to it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In your case, by making it unambiguous, the immorality of the opposition to the machine to the machines is 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 not controversial and i'm wondering why did you decide to sort of 
was it just because you didn't want to repeat the sort of the, the, the typical way of treating this topic? Or was there something you specifically had in mind that required treating it this way rather than where their personhood is ambiguous? Well, I, I think there was two parts. I, I, I think there, I definitely chose to have their personhood uh, unambiguous in the sense that um, I literally give them the, the robot equivalent of a soul. Um, and we talk about that. Um, but I also tried to create that dimension of their existence as, as having such a profound complexity to it that um, there's a little bit of ambiguity in calling them or considering them persons because they've, they've evolved into such a more advanced consciousness that it's not that there may be less than a person which the antagonists in this story clearly view them as but they're kind of not persons either because they're they're uh they've got this highly evolved uh constantly reinventing itself uh you know at almost like you know data point by data point uh level at such a velocity that even if they have their daily backups by the time that they do their next daily backup, they're an essentially different being. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I felt that um, it's not necessarily ambiguity, uh, but it's complexity. And that complexity creates an otherness um, that I think um, is universal in uh, the human experience and what drives a lot of the antipathy that we see in the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so I guess, you know, let's just supposing that, you know, you're able to do more stories in this universe. Um, I'm wondering if you, you are planning to, to tell us a lot more about these machines. I mean, in, in other words, you get kind of teased a little bit, hinted at a little bit, you know, it's not, you know, if, if the standard problem is we're not sure whether they're people or not, and so it's ambiguous whether we have ethical obligations to them or not, um, you're almost coming on the other side of it and saying, the problem here is that it's ambiguous as to whether, not whether they're they're not people, but whether they're more than people, right? They're, they're in a mm-hmm. sense be, uh, uh, beyond us, um, mm-hmm. which raises a different set of anxieties, right? Right, um, right. Is that what your, is your plan if you get to do a bunch more of these? to further explore that space? Yes. Um, one chapter in the next three, if we get to do them, would involve a planet where it's almost kind of the inverse and there are kind of um, enslaved humans who have a somewhat transhuman aspect uh, in a technology that allows their masters to enslave them using that technology. So I'll be looking at a um, sort of a mirror reverse. And the, and the masters will be machines. No, uh, they're still, they're still going to be humans, at least in this draft. Maybe if you'll let me steal that idea, I might consider. Well, <laughs> only because it would be really that. interesting uh, to have it be a full reversal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you wanted to be critical, you could say is that, the machines are a little too good in this, in this episode. And it would be really mm-hmm. interesting if it got flipped and there was mm-hmm. a place in which the actual people, human people were enslaved 
or at least second class to the mm. machines. And Thompson Heller would have to have a sort of a similar, um, how shall I say, intervention with the machine mm-hmm. half of the intolerance divide. You know what I mean? That, that would right, be right. interesting. Anyway, um, but so you are planning, you do have, you're planning to develop a lot more of these things, right? We're, this is not the last we're going to see of these particular constituencies, so to speak. Um, yes. And uh, h- however, the next three chapters do go a bit more into the specifics of uh, the primary character relationship in the story is between Thompson Heller and a romantic interest, um, a, a person who's a religious academic. And Are you talking about the, Arch Bavi? Arch Bavi? Yes, the Arch Bavi. Um, she is a religious academic who is in the galaxy's most powerful and well-known religion, um, and she finds out at the outset of the first issue um, that they're they're reorganizing the church, and there's no longer going to be an academic wing, and she has to become a fully ordained cleric. Um, and up until that point, she was able to have a more free lifestyle, um, but if she chooses to become ordained. Um, she will have to take a vow of celibacy and, and, and those types of things. So is that the next issue? So let me try and get this. Um, the next issue that has a very ecclesiastical aesthetic, is that what this yes. next one is about? Is about, it's yes. about This is fantastic. Milton, this is just fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. Um, could you talk about the universe a little bit? So one of the things I do like is that you don't give a ton of exposition. You drop us in the universe mm-hmm. and we're going to find out about the universe as we go th- in, through the stories that you're telling in it mm-hmm. without spoiling, obviously the few, the next 25 episode issues, which I know are going to happen. Um, um, could you just tell us, give us a little bit description of this universe. Roughly how far in the future do you imagine it? you talk about it's, it's on a galactic scale. So I'm assuming that there's, there has to be interstellar travel. Like how, how well worked out is this? I mean, I, I mean, are you like a Michael Straczynski and if you like who wrote all of Babylon five, all five years of it ahead of time. And now it's, which is why the thing is so perfectly plotted. Or do you just have a, a general idea that you're just filling in as you go on? How well, how well actually designed is this universe already? Well, I I have a couple of uh, other series that I'm working on in addition to Thompson Heller uh, that are actually a little bit more long-term plotted out. And uh, one of them is uh, due to the inherent nature of, uh, of that story. Um, it's um, somewhat a bit more mythic and quest-like um, it's still science fiction. It's not fantasy or anything like that. But there's a discrete goal and a specific number of steps. Um, and so I have all of those steps mapped out. And it could go from 50 to 100 individual issues of comics. Um, and I've got all of the major beats in that planned out. Whereas with Thompson Heller, one of the virtues of it, like you said, it's it's got both the, the long arc and, but it's also 
at its heart episodic in nature. And that I think allows me to accordion it, to size it to um, whatever level we want. Um, And the current plan, in fact, um, when the first three issues are collected, we're going to add in three other short stories uh, set in the universe just to kind of add further incentive to purchase the trade collection. And after that, um, we're going to focus a lot on that relationship arc. Uh, And then after we do that, we can go to the back and fill in more cases that uh, Thompson has uh, encountered. Um, They, um, they are definitely um, wide ranging in terms of the scale of the galaxy. Um, I, I've kind of tried to cheat on the time frame. I, I haven't committed to one, um, but I've tried to consider it to be as close as plausible uh, so that the, the sort of social structures and, the yeah. humanity that we yeah. know now yeah. are, are as recognizable as possible. Yeah. yeah so that's I'm what hoping... I wondered though about the galactic scale of it. On the yeah. one hand, there are elements of it that would suggest it's got to be far, far future. On the mm. other hand, you know, the main character and the concerns are so uh, recognizable that that mm. would suggest a nearer future. And that's another thing I kind of liked about it is that you broke the standard genre types, right? So, you know, typically your cyberpunk is always near future, your 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 space opera is typically far future, and you mm-hmm. kind of mash them together. Um, now, I, I don't see any reason why there need to be in, in any inherent tension in that. I was just wondering how much you've actually mapped this thing out. I mean, do you have like, you know, do you have like, you know, legal pads filled with races and planets <laughs> and and technologies and spaceships and governments and stuff, or are you just literally here's a pencil sketch of a world and I'm just going to fill it in as I go along. So it's kind of, in this case, it's a little, um, it's a little bit almost random uh, or not necessarily random, but due to other factors like um, this, this version that you're seeing now, this three issue introduction to the character um, at the moment we decided to do uh, publishing, there was a different, introductory set of issues and that was that was going to be four issues um and that one was specifically on um uh the relationship with arch bobby and it was completely different uh that character was not a romantic foil that character at that point was purely a functionary um and all of the tension in that story was thompson heller um solving a case that involved the church. Um, And uh, that story was originally called four corners of the galaxy because it was going to be in four different parts of the galaxy. There's going to be four issues. Um, And now what I'm planning on doing uh, is sort of readapting that original four issues that had a completely different character relationship. That'll be the next thing we do but I'm going to have to revise it heavily to go with um, 
the new character. And then other things that I've written for it, for example, um, one thing that I started out as a short and got expanded uh, was um, just a night at a party uh, with Thompson Heller. And he just regales his, his audience with recent cases that he's solved. And um, another heavy point of influence for Thompson Heller is the um, Robert Altman version of the Philip Marlowe character uh, with Elliot Gould uh, yeah. in the title uh, from The Long Goodbye. Um, and I, I specifically modeled aspects of Heller's home base after that layout, uh, but instead of in sunny California, it's in urban futuristic Chicago. Um, and uh, the party takes place in that environment. So, but those are all just sort of uh, things that came about due to different directions that the publishing route might have taken the journey here was quite long um why did you switch so can i ask um and it because i again i am interested in in seeing behind the curtain into the process so that that description you just gave of that four book original four book idea that you had or four installments book that you Mm had um also sounds great what was the what were the considerations that caused you to change to what you ultimately wound up doing? I wish I had my wallet here so I could use it as a prop. It's a, it was hundred percent economic. So uh, explain choice. how that and, and what how do how does economics come to bear on something like this? So um, choice like as, this, especially as a relatively unknown you know first time creator. Um, the the potential audience, you know, there are a lot of success stories and there are a lot of failures and it's hard to predict where you're going to land in that spectrum. And uh, in monthly comics, um, there is a, an attrition rate that every comic has, no matter whether it's one of the most successful uh, Marvel or DC comics or whether it's an independent comic. And so once you peg issue number one at, we're going to estimate X number of sales, issue number two is going to decrease X amount. Issue number three is going to decrease X amount. Issue number four is going to decrease. And so the more issues that you publish the first time out, your profit margin uh, gets closer and closer into the red um, the longer you go. So um, in order to guarantee as close as possible of either breaking even or actually turning a profit, the decision was made in this instance to go with the three-issue story. Um, yeah, but why the complete change of the substance? In other words, was it simply that there was no conceivable way to do what you were originally going to do in three installments? Or right. were there commercial considerations having to do with the substance itself, the plot, the, the, the plot itself? In this case, it was, I mean, there, there may have been a little bit of a substantial uh, element because this, what we ultimately ended up going with did turn out to be more introductory. Um, the original four-issue arc would have been, uh, I, I thank you that you complimented the fact that you just kind of get thrown into this world. 
that one probably would have thrown you a little bit too far into the deep end. Mm. So ultimately the substance choice was the right one, but I really wasn't thinking about that at the time. At the time I had two different outlines and I presented both of them to the publisher um, and the publisher was cool. And they, they said, you know what, here's what we think the numbers are going to look like. Um, it's really up to you. Um, we're not going to force you into A or B. Um, but me and my collaborators, we, we went with choice A, um, a somewhat more um, uh, safe choice. Um, but ultimately, it turned out to be the, the right one. Let me ask you about that, what you just described, the sort of um, logic of attrition. Um, and please, again, you know, I'm, I'm going on my own idiosyncratic knowledge of the, of, the, of the medium. My impression has been is that that's a kind of a more like a, an, up and an, an up and a down. In other words, I can remember long standing series that, you know, were, you know, were very hot and then they kind of, they kind of got less hot. But then something would happen that would make them extraordinarily hot again. Sometimes it would be the bringing in of a new artist, right? So I'm mm-hmm. thinking of when Frank Miller came on board X-Men. It just yeah. all of a sudden became huge. When right. it had been kind of sort of middling along. Um, 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 now, I happen to really love the early X-Men, the yellow and blue outfit X-Men. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, um, I, I had, I think, issue four. I think I had number four, eight. I had I had a bunch of early issues, um, and I really liked them, but there was no just there's, there was just no question the thing re- received a huge injection. Same thing with Batman again. Interestingly enough, when Frank Miller came in, it all of a sudden it became huge again. So, yeah. is it not the is what is what I'm describing consistent with what you're saying, or is it an exception? Or because that's always been my impression is that the fortunes of these comics are sort of up and down. It's not up straight down sort of yeah um what you're describing is um is definitely still true the only difference i would say is that now the major comic publishers are aware of that and consciously strategically plan for that and they they try to predict when those are going to happen and what they do is they realign the creative teams at specific moments and then they re <coughs> they rebrand it. They 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 go back to counting it to issue number one again, or um, or they give it a new subtitle. Um, and Marvel, in particular, uh, in the past six years, basically every year there's kind of a company wide rebranding. They give the entire universe a kind of a catchphrase. And um, although isn't that also pretty pretty long standing? I mean, haven't the X Men had all sorts of different subtitles? Like it was the Uncanny X Men, and it was the um, I forget what the original, you know. And the same thing with the Avengers. I think there were multiple subheading. Yeah. Has that not yeah. always been the case? Well, what I'm referring to is even within the a given title, um, if if you um, uh, what you're referring to often is kind of more of spinoffs. Mm-hmm. And now uh, in some of the big comics, they, they will rebrand the main title to like for a while. Uh, Spider-Man was not Peter Parker for a year. Oh, I Spider-Man, 
was taken over by Dr. Octopus. Yeah, I see. Okay. Uh, and they called him the superior Spider-Man. Um, and, um, gotcha. and there are similar things going on in the Iron Man world. Um, so those sorts of things. But what you just described, there is a definite difference between uh, the up and down of like DC and Marvel comics and the introduction of new artists, new characters definitely does that. Um, but in independent creator-owned comics, what really ha- usually happens is you start out at a given level and then you go down. And then if you're lucky, you will, you will hit a sort of plateau. And as long as that plateau is profitable, you can sustain the series. Um, and like the best example in the past decade, uh, Image Comics put out a title called Chew. Um, and it was enormously successful and it allowed their creative team to just do whatever they wanted, uh, run the story as long as they wanted. Um, and they sustained it. Every chapter was excellent. Um, and so that's what most creator owned comics go for now. I'm just getting getting something that I want to, I want to ask you about. Sure. Sure. The, um, the sustaining of comics is shorter now though. The, what would have been considered a successful run in your heyday is much smaller now. And so probably um, there's, there's what it sounds to me like is your best bet is actually to make finite terminal series, right? I mean, mm-hmm. things that have a fixed almost more like mini series on TV rather than yes. And you know, endlessly season running. Um, um, so for the audience's sake and for my own, could you differentiate for me when you're talking about the majors and then the Indies, Mm -hmm. could you define those in relation to each other? Because, it seems to me more and more like there's kind of a blur, right? Because is it not the case that people from the majors are now producing indies? So here's what oh, I'm yes. thinking, here's oh, yes. what I'm thinking oh, yes. of, okay? Wait. Uh, Mark Millar. <laughs> right. Um, yes. Both Millar and Romita mm-hmm. are major, are, are, you know, are major comic people, right? Yes. Um, um, and yet, this is published on a press I never heard of, right? I mean, I mean, and I'm assuming it's because Marvel didn't want to touch it, right? Um, probably because it had a 10-year-old murderer in it. Um, yes. Um, um, these are, by the way, some of my favorite my favorite books, um, um, precisely because they're so subversive. Um, but. Is that line firm now, or is it just is it just so porous that the distinction is starting to not have much of a meaning anymore? Um, it's porous in terms of the creators. It is kind of solid in terms of the content. Um, the um, the big majors they they essentially own the superhero space. There are there are some other publishers that do superhero stuff independently. Uh, the one that's most well-known is called Valiant. They've got their own superhero universe. Um, but for the most part, the other indies focus on all the other genres, science fiction, horror, uh, crime, 
romance, uh, slice of life, um, anything and everything. Um, whereas Marvel and DC still essentially own the, the superhero world. Um, but the creators, like you mentioned, often play on both sides of the fence. And actually I, I may be wrong in remembering this, but I think Kick-Ass is actually technically by Marvel, but they they created their own label called Icon. Yeah, Icon. Uh, so Icon is a Marvel subsidiary. Right, right. I see. So this this was their attempt, and I, I think it's now defunct. Um, it was their attempt at having a adult label for for their best creators, but their best creators realized that financially – they'll get a better deal going with another publisher when they do their original content. So it's a little bit like it was a little bit of an effort to try and do something like what the major studios did with the smaller imprints that produced all those great indie films in the nineties. Right. Um, 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 but it didn't work, but the business model just didn't, didn't work. Is that, is that, um, I, I, I don't know how much of it you can attribute to that. I, I think um, they essentially got associated with just like two or three of their most high profile creators. And those guys also ended up doing some things with other publishers. And I guess they decided that the other publisher deals were better. Um, so um, I think that's how that played out. So is it is something like trans metropolitan, which had quite a which has quite a lengthy run, right? I mean, there's a lot yeah. of them. Yeah, it sounds to me like you you're going to want to say that's really fucking unusual, right? I mean, th- th- that's just yeah. rare. Yeah, like nowadays, the equivalent to that would be basically half as long. Uh, there are some exceptions, but um, like one of the best creators out there right now is a guy named Jonathan Hitman. He had an epic series, and it ran for just fifty issues or not even 50, like 45 issues. Um, gotcha. And so, um, gotcha. but uh, yeah. All right. Look, look, can, look, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about the actual creation. Um, so first I'd like to hear from you how you've, how you worked. And then I want to hear how it's sort of typically done. In other words, did you start from the beginning with, an artist or did you write this as a purely literary thing and then brought an artist on board to illustrate? Uh, it was choice B there. I first wrote the scripts um, um, and the journey there was actually kind of complicated. The, um, the one part that new comic creators uh, new comic writers struggle the most with um, is, um, in my opinion, is finding artist collaborators. And there's an infinite variety of ways that that relationship can go wrong. Um, and it just so happens that um, Thompson Heller was originally slated to be published with a different publisher part of it, it was, it was kind of almost like a competition, but not really a competition. There was a wave of books from new creators um, and me and a handful of other creators submitted, were planning on submitting uh, to this. 
Um, and two of my peers uh, and me, we all had the same deadline. Um, but two of my peers, both of their artists were not able to hit the deadline. Um, so their submission did not actually go up. Um, we all had these grand visions of debuting together. Um, and so what ended up happening was one of the three of us decided, you know what? I, I don't want to have to re- rely on someone else. I'm going to learn how to draw. And that person spent Jesus. four, ye- that's four a ta- years. That's a, that's a fucking job. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and and that's well well enough for it to pass muster in an industry. I mean, that's yes. And that person already had native drawing ability. They needed to learn how to draw for comics. Um, and that person spent four years baby stepping, baby stepping, baby wow. stepping. And just this year, he debuted his first uh, online comic that he drew. Uh, one of my other friends uh, and peers, uh, he just, you know, he rolled with the punches and found new collaborators and ultimately has been successful in creating a body of work in the last uh, five years. So you wrote this thing first purely, as a purely literary project. I yes. mean, you were intending for it to be a comic, but you, you, yes. it was simply text first. You right. then submitted it to... Is it, so is that is that in general how the comics experience thing works? Because one of the nice things in the book itself is at the back, there's a description of how the comic experience works. And it's mm-hmm. got it broken down into three steps. The first is to join the wor- online workshop. The second is to workshop your creator-owned project. And then the third is to submit it. Do they pair writers with artists? Or do you have to go find your own artists? Like how... How did you, the artist that you have for this is so perfectly suited to the, the nature of the, of what the writing is that I would have thought that you two collaborated from the beginning. How did you, was that just luck or do they pair, do they try to match people, writers with artists? It was, it was luck. Um, they do not pair writers with artists. Um, and not only was it luck, it was luck that was arrived at through bad luck. Um, because, <laughs> because there was actually a version of this that was done by another artist. Um, that typically what is done in most uh, publishers, uh, mid-level and smaller ones, is what you do is you create a pitch. And it's kind of more like a proof of concept. And what you, you do is you send them a text summary of the high level overview of the entire project beginning to end um, what the characters are, what the environment is uh, the biographies of the collaborators. And then you literally show them five to 10 pages of finished work, uh, which you have to, but with the art, with the art, with the art, which means you have to find an artist, right? How does a writer find an artist? That is the hardest part of the process. Um, I, I can explain how I did it. I'd like to know how you do it, did it, and wound up with the artist you, you wound up with, which is unbelievably symbiotic. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read a lot of the reviews, but more than one review has commented on how well-suited the art is to the content. Right, right. I'd like to know how you got your artist, but also I'd like just to hear what you know generally 
how writers go about getting artists other than the way you got it. So, yeah. yeah. So um, it's an evolving thing. Um, it, it involves social media a lot more now than it used to. Um, the, the route I took, ultimately I became so fortunate because the person that we did end up collaborating with is Dave Chisholm. And I, I don't think I'm going to jinx it here. He is going to be in the running for best artist of the year this year for it just so happened that he had three different projects come out this year, even though they weren't necessarily originally slated to be this year. Um, and um, the book he has coming out just in a few days is a book about the jazz legend, Charlie Parker. And it was actually commissioned by the Charlie Parker estate. Oh, wow. Um, and the foreword for that book was written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, he is being featured in a panel during the Grammys. So Chisholm already has a reputation in the industry because otherwise the Parker estate wouldn't even know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so he already, he already has a – he, he's not with any of – he hasn't published with any of the major – not yet. It's all in. He's done all indie stuff, but he's well known, I guess, in the indie. He, I think he would. He is now. At the moment that all of these opportunities came about, you kind of had to be paying a lot of attention to the, you know, I guess you'd consider it like the minor leagues. Yeah. Um. Um. So if you if you observe that space, you, you see who are up and coming talents in the in the art world. So how um, did you get him? So, well, first I found another artist. Um, There were a couple of forums that were old school bulletin board style forums that comic artists who were trying to learn craft would go to. They would post their work in progress and there would be sections where uh, writers could post advertisements soliciting work. Um, And there's a whole game there in terms of what types of financial arrangements you offer. Um, There's everything from uh, no upfront payment to a a split of the intellectual property versus all upfront payment, no split of the intellectual property, and then infinite variations in the middle. So the writer Uh, pays the artist? In most instances, yes. Does it ever go the opposite way? The artist is looking for a writer? It does. Yes, it does go the other way. Uh, Obviously not in the financial sense, but there are a lot of artists that will post some concept drawings and say, Hey, I've got this world. I've got this character, but I'm really not a writer. Can you help me flesh it out? Um, So that does happen a lot. So you were in these forums, you were fun. And so I'm taking it that the first, the first artist you had was somebody who was still trying to learn the craft. Yeah, and they were very well accomplished. I thought they were good. They didn't match what I had in my head. Um, their their style was a little bit more clean. I was going to say, how um, different was it from what we got? What with from this? Um, it was very different. Um, in the less gritty. Ter- yeah, way less gritty. A lot more clean. A lot more um, realistic in terms of like the the human anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and that's not really what I wanted, but less, guy was, less stylized, less stylized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And ultimately we got a, we actually got a publishing agreement um, out of, out of the original version. So what happened? that artist went completely AWOL on me. And to this day, I don't even know if he's alive or dead. So wait a minute, you got the deal and that's what he went AWOL was after you. Got... Yes. You can't make this shit up, right? And, <laughs> and not only was it a deal, it was a deal with one of the top five publishers in the industry. Okay. So I, yes, yes. It's like, ultimately I'm glad it worked out the way it did though, because it turned out that those folks had other other priorities and ultimately once my artist uh jumped out it became revealed that you know they weren't all that keen on these projects to begin with um so i went Uh, back to your deal might not have been as good of a deal as you thought in other words yes yes was it sort of like in the movies where they were just buying up everything and maybe one of one of them would get made one day but it was sort of like studios sometimes just try to buy up every script that they can find um, and put them in a box somewhere just so nobody else will make them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Was it- <laughs> um, I, I, I don't have as much insight into that as I would like. Um, I think it was a little bit more of a, there was a change in regime oh. and sort of like, like with a new coach, you want new personnel like, Hey, yeah, sure. You know, sure. Sure. So, so, so that then, fell apart. That fell apart. And so now, You've got a completed comic and no publisher. Okay, no, at that point, I've got an incomplete comic and no publisher, but I have complete scripts. Gotcha. So, so, so now I go looking for an artist again. And it turns out Dave Chisholm, he was not available the first time around. He is available this time around. I had actually worked with him in the past. One of those shorts that you put up, the winter sale – um, is is one that he did right right and he he had a gap in his schedule and i said hey can you take a crack at this and he said sure and ultimately that was serendipitous because he was much more in aligned stylistically with what i had hoped for he's a lot more imaginative um and then um the other thing there was one consistent connective tissue between the two and that is we had the same colorist in both versions. Um, the colorist is a guy named Fabian Cobos. Uh, he's based out of Mexico and he has a style that really works. Um, we, we wanted to evoke um, a little bit of the color palette styles of the, uh, the giant in science fiction uh, illustration Mobius. Um, I was, gosh, man, I was going to say it has a little bit of that look. Yeah, we, we specifically, um, and in fact, I didn't even think of it that way. I had a different, I had kind of more of a gunmetal cyberpunk color palette in mind. And one of my collaborators said, no, 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 go Mobius. And he actually did a proof of concept. He isn't a colorist, but he's a talented dude. And so he, he did one of the pages and he said, this is how you need to do it. And once I saw it, I realized, Oh gosh, yes, we have to do that. Um, so then I found that artist um, also on one of those message boards. Now those message boards aren't as reliable. Um, for a while, a lot of artists were posting stuff on Tumblr and then Tumblr kind of collapsed. 
and now all the action is on Instagram and Twitter. God, it's so haphazard. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, somebody would do do everybody a lot of a lot of good if they just somebody devoted themselves to simply organizing the process, right? I mean, I mean <laughs> to have a sort of an established. Um, um, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I can't. I, so, so the Roger Ebert and me comic um, had a different artist. Yes. Um, and actually, I think that art style also would have worked for, for Thompson Heller. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you not use the same artist you'd used before? Um, I mean, sometimes- if, if there's anything disclosing, don't say it, obviously. But I mean... In in that case, maybe talk a little more abstractly. Like, why would you? Why wouldn't you sort of keep working with the same artist if the art style makes sense? Is there a reason the, to sort of change artists? Yeah, um, with the Roger and Ebert in me artist, um, a lot of it honestly came down to his availability. Mm. Um, r- um, right before the first version of Thompson Heller was going to be done. I, I had another project I was working on uh, that was a pure cyberpunk type thing. Um, and um, that was originally going to be my first series. And I posted an advertisement uh, looking for an artist for that. And he responded to it, but had forgot to attach the JPEGs of his, uh, of his portfolio. And in the amount of time it took me to communicate with him that I didn't have the JPEGs, he got hired by somebody else for another gig that had him busy for two years. Um, and so, <laughs> so a lot of it has to do with timing. Um, Is, am I hearing somebody, am I coming to understand a little bit, um, uh, what the issue is uh, with your hairline. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I could not take the stress of what you're distra- describing. I mean, and, I, I just... <laughs> and then my, my next project, I wanted to work with Dave Chisholm again, my next project. And it was actually this time last year around uh, like November of 2019 that we were talking about it. And he did some initial concept work for it. And then one morning he gave me a call and he said, dude, I haven't had a chance to tell you about this, but I've got this opportunity with the Charlie Parker estate. Um, and that is a huge project. And I have to focus on that hundred percent now. Yeah. So I can't, I can't do your other project. So, so now you got to find another artist again. Well, in that one, I was lucky because that one was originally going to be a multi-artist sort of jam piece. Um, and, there were multiple people who were already kind of doing work for it. Um, and then ultimately that changed its distribution model as well. And then, and we found a new publisher for it. And that, that new publisher said, Hey, we'd kind of rather just go with one artist. And so I went with someone who was already on the team at that point. Um, I just wanted to say, so just for the, for the sake of um, promotion, um, the Roger Ebert and me comic, the artist is Rem Brew. Yes. And I have to say, I really think the art in that is terrific also. Um, oh, um, yes. He, um, he won the Newcomer of the Year Award about like four or five years ago. Um, he's, he's an established talent that 
he's just a fantastic. Um, fantastic I do want to ask you just one more detailed question about process. Um, so again, my experience is from the silver age of comics and, you know, the task was broken down into the smallest number of pieces, right? So you had the writer, you had mm-hmm. the penciler, you had the mm-hmm. inker, you had the colorist, right? Um, mm-hmm. And these were all separate people. In Roger Ebert and me, and I love the, this about this, you actually have at the end, you show everybody what the process looks like. Oh yeah. I forgot that that's in there. Yes, oh my yes. God. That's so wonderful. And Rembrew does all of it. The pencils, the inking, and the color. Yes. Now, in Thompson Heller, Chisholm did the pencils and the inking, and Fabian does the color. Right. I guess what I'm asking is, is there a standard, or is it just some artists like to do all of it, some artists like to have it just to do one piece of it? Is it a matter of, whether you're in the big leagues or the little leagues, is it a matter of money? Is it a matter of, you know, what determines whether you're going to break that process down into every individual piece with a separate person for each one, or whether one guy is going to do all of the illustrating or whether like what, what determines all of that? In a number of cases, it, it is, uh, it is due to the big league versus little league thing. And some of it is due to individual artist uh, preference. Um, Penciling and inking now are almost always done by the same person now um, due to the fact that most artists incorporate some aspect of digital creation in their process now. Um, so is that even, true even so if I take a Marvel comic now, a current Iron Man or X-Men or whatever, the penciling and the inking is the same person? Yes, okay. almost always. Okay. Um, there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, it's going to be the same person. Gotcha. The, um, the colorist is often a different person on the big books and that's, that's a, that's a timeline pipeline thing. You can just get more things done more quickly if you have artists working in parallel. Cause I was going to say, I don't really see the advantage of having each individual element done by a separate person. And indeed I could imagine disadvantages in terms of aesthetic coherence, but I hadn't even occurred to me, that there is an economic advantage, a business model advantage in that you can have multiple people working on elements all at once. Right. Um, that's, that's a key part of it. And, but also there is an aesthetic advantage. What's the aesthetic in, advantage? Cause it's not intuitive. You wouldn't think that, right? Like you couldn't imagine like Rembrandt, right? Saying, okay, I'm going to have <laughs> one guy do the sketch and another guy, you know, you know what I mean? Like what, what's the, adva- what's the aesthetic advantage to it? There are some colorists who have embraced the the process of coloring to such a degree there's and and the fact that um digital creation and printing technology has improved to such a degree to where coloring now is just light years ahead of what was possible you know back in the 80s um just you know just through the print technology paper um everything but um like one of the best colorists in the industry uh, is a woman named Jordi Belair. And I think she got started in coloring maybe around like, I can't remember, like 2008 or something like that. And she was an illustrator at the time. And she said, you know what? I've been doing some coloring work. I'm just going to focus on this and I'm going to own this. And then she became the go-to person for 
like every image comic, the creator owned original stuff. Everybody wanted to work with her. And then she had some assistants who went on to like learn her methods and then they grew to become their own colorists. And it's kind of almost a family um, of, of, of great colorists who kind of all have a shared lineage. Um, and there are other really high profile colorists as well. Um, and there, there are some people that when they just focus in that space and that's, that's what they're doing all the time. Um, the, the quality of work just really it's a matter of high. almost like a kind of an expertise and specialization. Yeah. 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 And, and like Dave Chisholm, he worked, he collaborated with someone on, on his jazz book, his Charlie Parker book. Um, he did some of the coloring himself. He had a collaborator do some of the coloring um, and, and it worked out just fantastically. Um, why in co- do you know why it is in that this is done this way in comics and not in other visual arts? In other words, why, why don't painters break up the process into the separate pieces? <laughs> is it because of the way comics are actually produced? Is that the reason? I, I suspect that's part of the reason, but also um, I, would com- I would compare the analog almost to like the cinematographer in a film because um, the, the great colorists are thought of in the comics industry like the great cinematographers are in the film industry. So it's like, man, I really want to work with Roger Deakins, you know? So they're, they're almost literally like painting the light on the shots. It's a fundamentally collaborative art form. Yes. In the way that being a painter is not right. I mean, I mean, it's got that kind of a a collaborative um, um, element to it. Um, So here's the thing though. So, you get the three, the three come out and let's just say it's a, it's, it's a, it's a runaway success and there's going to be more of these, right? What if you can't get Chisholm? Like, in other words, how does this all work? I mean, is this the kind of thing where you could wind up having to work with a different artist or is it the kind of thing where, Oh no, once you're in, if this thing goes on, you're now in, and is that official? Is that just informal? I mean, how, how do these contracts work? I mean, it's funny you should mention this. Um, if we do get to continue the series, Dave is probably not going to be the artist. Um, and, and I don't want to disappoint you too much. No, no, I'm not um, disappointed. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to wrap my mind around trying to work in this kind of environment. I just, I, I, I think I feel sick all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, uh, so, um, but go on. Just wait. He, if it continues, he probably won't be the artist for the next ones. And, and that, that is due to the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, I really think he's going to be nominated in multiple categories, uh, for the comics equivalent of, um, the, like Academy Awards next year. Yeah. So he's not going to be doing indie comics anymore. He's going to be, he's going right. to be taken up by one of the big, uh, in, in, in fact, his next two projects, his, his year 2021 are, is basically already already booked. Um, so are you already looking – have you already got your antenna out for artists? Well, I kind of got lucky in this respect. Um, I, I, I alluded to this earlier. We're going to um, supplement the trade collection with three short stories. Yes. And they are, they are done with three different artists. And that sort of turned out to be almost kind of like – a tryout session 
Um, and so one of those three will be the artist going forward. And I hope and expect that uh, everyone will uh, be equally enamored with that work. Uh, and because and the- you're, as, as a writer and as an artist, do you, is it your no- thought that the best thing to do is to have the next art style be completely different or is it to try to get it as close to the Chisholm style as possible? I mean, you could see it going, you could see an argument either way, right? I'm curious what right. your, what your thinking is on that. Um, it turned out in all of those cases, um, we sidestepped that question and just went with the, the best approach for that given artist. And then ultimately there's one that's maybe a little more similar to Dave than the other one. Um, but ultimately that's going to, that's going to come down to availability and economics, honestly. Um, uh, and I, I am going to be happy with either approach because the, the shorts are fantastic as well. And so I'm, I'm very pleased with, I've been just showered with great luck, uh, and I guess the more successful you are, the more you become to be a known quantity, probably the easier it is to get artists, right, who want to work with you. Hope, 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 That's the, hope, I, hope. I mean, the idea, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, last thing I want to ask you, um, because I realize we're now, we're now an hour and a half. I, I, could, I, could, oh, talk wow. about, <laughs> I could talk about this forever. Um, how well does this have to do? And when will you know if it's done that well to determine whether there's going to be more Thompson Heller? Um, the weird thing is, is um, the answer to that is really not only tied to this one project. Um, there are other projects that I have in the pipeline um, that. Um, are you not allowed to disclose them? No. Well, one of them is public. Uh, there are two others that I can't disclose. And um, a lot of it is going to have to do with the relative investment that I personally have to make in those, because I'm not yet at the point to where the, the, the income that's being generated right now from this series, the actual physical dollars for that, I'm not actually going to see until 2021. So I'm still personally investing on the like test out work on some of the things that I'm working on now. And when you say investing, you mean paying artists? Yes. Yes. So the, um, the, the decisions that are going to come into a lot of that are going to have a lot to do with timing. Um, I think it's possibly more likely than not, I, I definitely feel like I've already got enough positive feedback and interest that there is appetite out there for more Thompson Heller. I am a little concerned that it, it might have a significant gap. It might have, it might have a six month to 12 month gap before I even start teasing people how the next batch is going to happen. Um, so is there um, so how do you find out your sales figures? How do you know how many things how many this thing is sold? 
it varies from publisher to publisher. Um, and the publisher, both of the publishers I'm working with right now are very transparent and they'll give you informal updates. You could just, you know, talk to the people there like, Hey, how many is this sold so far? How many is this? I've, I've been fortunate in that, um, the initial batch of orders for the second issue initially came in at a specific number and then it increased based on the feedback of the first one there. They, they wanted a little bit more than they originally wanted for issue two. So that's, that's a really good sign. Um, so um, my local vintage stock had it in stock. They had obviously ordered it. Now Mm -hmm. I asked, I'm friends with the, the manager and he told me that each individual vintage stock, their managers decide what they're going to. It's not a corporate mm-hmm. um, decision. I guess probably, you know, they all carry Superman or whatever. But, you know, I mean. Right. Um, and so apparently, you know, I mean, you know, vintage stock's a major chain. I mean, apparently it was well enough known that this guy decided to order it, right? Um, um, but um, I'm assuming that there are probably more sales that are – just for the electronic versions, right? Than the physical versions. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, no. I think the physical versions is still the where the majority of the sales happen. Interesting. Um, is that true in general for comics, or is that just in true true about this one? It's true of American, um, definitely the big publishers, Marvel and DC, but also the independent publishers. Where, where I think the line starts to get blurry is there, there are other things that are inherently digital. Like there's, there's an entire platform out there called Webtoons. Um, and one of my friends that I was referring to earlier who decided to learn how to draw, his first work is on Webtoons, uh, which is geared mostly to phones and tablets. Um, Things are formatted and, for that small, yeah, 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 make, yeah, and, yeah. And and they're also formatted to be vertical as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and they have a huge audience. I mean, and the game there is um, is once you reach a certain threshold, you become part of their like premium offerings, and you start to get revenue from that. Um, so it's a completely different economic model. The scale is different, um, and. Uh, manga is a completely different thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it kind of depends on which space you're playing in. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say is congratulations. Um, um, I'm hopeful because it's so good that it, other people are going to think so and that you're going to be able to keep going. And um, the um, – is your earlier stuff – if someone wants to buy this, how do they buy it? So at the moment, the only way to, uh, the only official way to buy Roger and me, well, there's a handful of different ways. Um, it's actually collected in an anthology called uh, Roads Not Taken. And it's an anthology that's available from the publisher Source Point Press. And you can, um, you can go there. Just go to Source Point Press and search for "Roads Not Taken." Uh, I guess I'll send you the link to it, um, so you could put it up on the site. Yeah, I'd like to have well. links to all of it, so that people who want to who want to purchase stuff from your catalog are able to do so. Um, and another another factor in all your questions that you didn't bring up. Uh, yeah, please. COVID, 
COVID is a huge impact on all of this. It's destroyed um, comic stores is from what I understand. It has destroyed some comic stores. Some are doing okay. Um, and it's completely changed the distribution model. There were already some things that were happening that were going to cause that anyway. But um, the fact that we can't have conventions, mm. the other answer I was going to give is I typically go to conventions and I can sell those at conventions. Um, and, you know, there were no conventions this year. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that that is a huge thing that is also impacting which projects I can fund uh, going forward. Um, hopefully early summer next year, we're going to, we're going to be in a post pandemic world yeah. and those sort of things can, uh, you know, gear up again. Yeah. Can return. Um, and I, how I've been to comic conventions, although the, I, I think the last one I went to was probably 30 years ago. Um, uh, Milton, thank you so much. Good, good luck to you. This thank is really, uh, this is really a, a, really a major accomplishment and I really loved it. And um, I strongly uh, encourage everybody watching to pick these up. These are terrific. And um, you don't get stuff this good for this cheap. I mean, geez, this was $4, man. <laughs> I wish you could. I mean, th I think this should be priced higher. But, I mean, um, uh, there's there's no bar to, to entry on these. Um, and um, best of luck to you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.